Well, hello, hello. I'm here in the studios of Connecticut Public. Um, hopefully this is a wise choice. We've tried to clean the studios up and, and limit... But we sort of tried to depopulate our newsroom. So there aren't too many people around, which is ideal. But uh, here in this little space here, in three different rooms, I might add, our cat pastor on the board and senior producer, uh, Betsy Kaplan, who's produced today's episode. Uh, in the second uh, part of uh, of the, today's show, the second segment, we're going to talk, of, of all things, politics. But actually, there was a debate last night. There actually are four primaries still scheduled for tomorrow. They don't appear to be getting postponed. Um and oh, in the final segment, just because we think that it's important to keep the rest of life in view, although we are going to tie it to, to uh, coronavirus, we're going to talk about Shakespeare. Um, Shakespeare, of course, wrote kind of during the plague and sometimes plagues uh, informed his writing very much. But Shakespeare, as usual, has a lot to say. Anyway, we need to talk about coronavirus right now, this uh, tiny little thing uh, which has caused uh, incredible trouble and is going to cause a, a lot more before it's done. Uh, and to help us do it, uh, Dr. Joseph Vinets, a professor of infectious diseases at Yale University. I want to say that we, you know, we may not have the answer to everything here. In fact, I can actually guarantee you that we don't have the answer to everything here. But if you did want to call in at 888-720-9677 with a question or or tweet at us. That would probably be better, at WNPR Colin, uh, or join us on Facebook or whatever you want to do. Uh, if you have questions, we, we could try to get them answered. Uh, but uh, Dr. Joseph Vinets, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. And I have to tell you, Colin, my wife, Carla DeVellers, is your biggest fan. I'm jealous. <laughs> well, I'm, I, I'm no threat to anyone's happiness, uh, at least as far as I can tell. Uh, so let's, let's begin. Well, you know, rather chillingly, uh, Andrew Cuomo a few hours ago um, was on television saying he doesn't think, at least in the case of New York State, hospitals will be able to meet the demand. At some point, it will be not possible to flatten the curve uh, enough so that uh, existing medical capacity will work. Uh, and so he's already looking for maybe some help like field hospitals uh, from the federal government. But let's back up with this idea of flattening the curve. I'm assuming, since we talked about it extensively a week ago on this show, that, and it's been talked about everywhere since then, that a lot of people know what we mean. But just review for people what we're talking about when we urge people to help flatten the curve. Well, it has to do with um, how, how high the peak of cases gets. Mm -hmm. And so if you have a high peak and everybody becomes immune because they were exposed during that big peak of infection, then that peak can be very high and overwhelm the healthcare system. And so if you are able to get people apart from each other and so they're not transmitting to each other, the peak is lower, but it extends over a longer period of time. But if you get that peak flat enough, then it's less likely to overwhelm the healthcare system. You know, whenever we have something like this, there's on the one hand medical science and then on the other hand public understanding of medical science. And those two things can be very, very far apart. Uh, and, and this seems to be one of the things that we might be struggling with right now, that, that, that someone – this is a horrible way to put it – but someone who is going to die uh, of, of COVID-19 – is uh, who's going to die a month from now or three weeks from now of COVID-19, presumably has been infected already but doesn't know it, right? Isn't part of the problem here just the, the, the relative in invisibility of the disease in its early stages? I think that's right. There's transmission 
mostly happens from people who are already sick, but there is definitely a component of transmission from people who are not sick at all or just have a mild kind of cold. Uh, recent data seems to indicate that children or who are in, in, in maybe up to the 20s can be subclinically or no obvious manifestation of infection, but can transmit that infection to others. And so then during the first week, people have kind of like a cold or mostly a flu. The COVID-19 doesn't really give kind of sinus or nasal symptoms. It kind of starts out with sore throat and then you get, it goes uh, to feeling kind of a lethargy and exhaustion then fever, then pneumonia, really in the second to third week. And it's in the second to third week that um, people, at least according to the clinical descriptions, tend to start crashing. So that's exactly right. It can be an incubation period of up to 5 to 14 days, and then the progression through mild to more severe to even more severe illness. So this can be a weeks-long process. And even more important, the ability to detect infectious virus in the coughs of people who are recovering from illness. We don't know how infectious people are even after recovery, although there's one study I saw that just because you can detect a virus with one of our molecular tests does not mean they're infectious after about seven to ten days after the resolution of clinical illness. So if somebody gets sick and has a cough, fever and a cough, about seven to ten days later, the molecular test may still be positive, but it seems, at least according to the one study I saw, that, the, that whatever the nucleic acid, the RNA that's present in the virus that comes out, may be less infectious than it was before. And that some people are attributing that to an immune response. So just um, just to summarize that, <laughs> it is a weeks-long process in that people can get severe disease starting in the second to third week, but infectiousness from time of exposure to um, uh, stopping of being infectious to others may be a matter of three to six weeks even. We not, we're not exactly sure. There's so many of what Donald Rumsfeld famously called known unknowns. There's a lot of things that you don't know. For example, listening to you say what you just said, one thing I think we don't absolutely know for sure is that a person who's been through this entire process and has lived through it and has, quote unquote, recovered from it, has anything resembling a permanent or long-term immunity? We don't know the answer to that question. There's rumors and maybe some preliminary data that there is a test positive after clinical recovery and after. So let's just go back to what the test is. The only test we have available is a nucleic acid amplification test. It's called reverse transcriptase PCR. All that means is that the RNA or the nucleic acid of this virus is detectable with this test, which is extremely specific um, for the presence of the RNA, but is not specific necessarily for the presence of an infectious virus. So 
we don't know the answer. And so this one study that I read has to do with can you recover virus that you can then grow in culture? And so there's a difference between a test positive and then whether that virus is actually infectious later on. It seems as though, I mean, he, here we have this, you know, this frightening and in many cases, or at least in some cases, deadly thing that we are urgently needing to study. Uh, and I, I read stat news and stuff like that to try to keep up yeah, with all this. Course. But um, it, it does seem as though it's, we're trying to study a moving target. This is a very difficult way to learn scientific information about a thing when, in fact, it's kind of – it's in the process of being what it is and, and it hasn't really maybe presented all of its different aspects to it. And maybe you can say a little bit about the, just the difficulty. And, and I, I sense also that, that knowledge, if it seems even remotely reliable, is being rushed towards us maybe without the usual painstaking and time-consuming review process. Well, uh, the review process doesn't necessarily lead to greater truth. Mm. But um, and I think that there's a lot of very useful and important information that's coming out. And so one of the beauties of the Internet era, really even over the last couple of years, are these um, online archives of preprints. Uh, it used to be maybe, you know, over the last couple of decades, you would send a copy of your manuscript to peers in your field, and now those manuscripts are being put into these various archives. There's a med archive, bio archive, I'm sure there's other archives. And these are where people are putting their um, unpeer-reviewed research data and manuscripts um, before they've undergone peer review. Um, and so peer review then becomes kind of um, uh, outsourced to the whole population. And so just... Be, but... Just because these are preprints and hasn't been peer-reviewed doesn't mean there's not useful information there. So, so I, I think it's a democratization of data. I think, generally speaking, most of the time it's very good. So what are, what are, what are things that you wish we knew about corona, this particular coronavirus, the COVID-19 coronavirus? What are things that still are unknown that are vitally important. I mean, setting aside the whole question of testing, obviously we wish we could test this population, figure out what the virus is doing. But but as an animal all by itself, what do you want to know about it? About the virus itself. Yeah. And the disease it causes. Yes. I would like to know how long people are infectious after clinically recovering. Mm. I would like to know how we can have a more rapid test rather than using a a fancy, expensive, and time-labor-intensive molecular test. I'd like to have that so that somebody could go and get a sample taken and know in 15 minutes whether or not they have infectious virus or not. Those are kind of the, you know, the quick things. Um, you know, bigger scale things are if we start antiviral treatments in these clinical trials that are going on, how long does it take for the infectious virus load to go down mm -hmm. so that people can then be cleared and go back into the community. How can we assess populations of people to be able to allow more personal freedoms or not, or restrict them, which is data-based? This, this is just focusing on the virus itself. Do you feel pretty comfortable with what we know so far about 
the way in which people can get infected by the virus. In other words, we know that uh, that hand-to-face, hand-to-mouth, uh, being near anybody who's coughing or anything like that, we know that it survives on surfaces, especially hard surfaces, uh, for quite a while. Um, but for example, we actually also know, I guess there's a possibility of, um, of, of fecal transmission of it as well. Um, but I, you know, to this day, I don't know. I don't know. I get a newspaper thrown into my driveway every day yeah. in plastic. I don't know whether you know somebody who could have coughed and then folded up the newspaper and put it into the the little plastic cover. I I don't I have no idea of evaluating whether I should bring such a thing inside my house. No, I, I think that you reflect very. Everybody shares a concern. Mm. So, and it's been confusing, and I've tried to follow it closely, and it seems that it's not all or none. It's not all respiratory transmission, mm-hmm. and it's not all touching exposed things. I think it's a combination of the two. Certainly, we know that somebody with the infection is going to be the source of an infectious virus, mm-hmm. whether it goes through the air and goes into somebody's eyes, nose, or mouth, or whether they cough on a surface, people touch that and then transfer whatever contamination is on the surface to their eyes, nose, or mouth. It's probably a combination of both. Uh, That being said, the CDC and its official guidelines currently, as of last week, are primarily respiratory transmission, probably not by breathing particles in the air, but probably large large droplets Mm -hmm. that are being coughed in fairly close proximity. And that's the basis for keeping people six feet apart, that they think that it's large. There's two kinds of droplets that come out of somebody's mouth when they cough. There's the large droplets, and then there's the aerosol droplets. The aerosol droplets can stick around the air for a long time, including from measles virus, for example, which rooms are infectious for, for hours on end, mm. or the chickenpox virus can be in the air, the micro aerosols the, can be infectious for hours on end. So this was super highly infectious. But the large droplets have are subject to gravity and so they tend to deposit on surfaces. And if it ha- if your if your face if you're on a subway or a train or standing at Mar a Lago and somebody coughs right in your face, mm. um, then you're going to get infected with it through your eyes, nose or mouth. Um, that's how uh, the CDC thinks the, pre- the predominant, not the only, but the predominant mode of transmission is. Uh, so when we saw that first young doctor in China, the 31-year-old doctor who died from severe COVID-19, he probably got a lot of coughing in his face and probably got a big viral load, and that's probably why he got infected and, and did so poorly. That's a guess, mm-hmm. but it seems um, logical to me. But the bottom line is people um, who are coughing out large droplets are probably the most important sources of infection. That doesn't mean we shouldn't um, wash our hands a lot, because that's also a mode of infection. It may not be the predominant one, but it sure explains a lot of the community spread. As far as uh, stool, feces, diarrhea, that seems to be um, unlikely. There's some data that even though the PCR test can detect virus, it's not clear that this is infectious virus. 
And in our country where we have pretty good um, sanitary uh, measures among our population, not perfect, but pretty good, it seems to not be an important mode of transmission. You know, obviously, I'm in the business of trying to figure out what to tell people or trying to get people like you to, to know what to tell people. I, I, there's one quote that has been repeated quite a bit over the weekend. It's a little 18-second video clip by a British infectious disease expert named Graham Medley, and I thought it made a lot of sense. Uh, he's a professor of infectious disease modeling, I guess. He said most people mm-hmm. have a fear. Most people have a fear of acquiring the virus. I think a good way of doing it is to imagine that you do have the virus and change your behavior so that you're not transmitting it. Um, I've heard it said a lot of different ways, but I hadn't heard it said that way before. And, and it, that does seem, seem to fill in a kind of mental gap that people have about this. I, I think there's a certain amount of wisdom to to that. I haven't seen that particular uh, clip or haven't heard this clip, but it, I think it is important for everybody to be assuming that they're infected and they should be practicing social distancing for the next couple of weeks or even longer, especially if they've developed symptoms. We're in the flu season still. There are other causes of colds and flu-like symptoms. And so these are common illnesses, and everybody needs to assume that they're infected. Now, um, in England, um, and I'm not sure exactly because there's a lot of fog of war going on, there's some rumors that, um, that some leaders want to have a group exposure, as it were, a population exposure, so that there's herd immunity. So everybody who's at low risk for severe disease um, goes out, has a big party, and I'll get this disease and get it all over with. Um, but they're at low risk for getting hospitalized. I'm not sure that would go over very well, uh, at least in our society. But that's, that's, that's a direct um, extension of the modelers' ideas about let's create some herd immunity. Um, but that's the disconnect between science and, um, and policy. I, I don't advocate that. The um, yeah, I, th- I think I think also that's now being understood. And uh, Ed Young, who's been on our show before, talking about bacteria instead of viruses, has a piece I think in the Atlantic right now talking about this as a communications fiasco. Was the the way that they put it? Uh, they put it in pretty much the way that you just described it, and that's not what they meant. Which you would imagine that at a time like this, you would make sure that you said what you meant. But uh, yeah. that that seems not to have happened. Now, another thing that I think that we struggle with cognitively is the notion. For example, I'm sitting here in this radio studio, but since Wednesday night until now, I have only been at my house or out in the great outdoors with my dog, not near any people. Um, but I, some medical scientists say, well, you could do that and still at some point, you know, maybe a lot further down the road so that you do help flatten the curve, you're going to get this or you have a 70, you know, 70% of us are going to get it or whatever number people are picking. Is there a way in which ultimately this virus does outwit even our efforts to practice social distancing, at least for some of us in some cases? Well, let's, if you'd like to go back to the virus itself, so coronaviruses, there's, there's zillions of them. There's animal ones, you know, a third of all the cases of common cold in humans are due to some kind of a coronavirus. These viruses are common, they're out there. Um, 
So this particular virus is called SARS-CoV-2, as opposed to the SARS-CoV-1 from uh, the SARS epidemic. So this is a fairly closely related virus. Um, one of the questions that will come out is whether this virus mutates um, in response to human immune responses um, while this epidemic happens and would mute. So the virus itself is, it has a membrane around it as it buds out of the, the host cell that makes them. And then inserted into that membrane are these spike proteins called S proteins for spike. And then the end of this protein is what sticks onto the human cells and presumably is the target of a protective antibody response. That part of the protein seems to be very mutation susceptible. Mm -hmm. I have not seen data yet that a second or subsequent infection could be due to a mutation in that part of the S protein. I am certain there are a hundred research groups looking exactly at that question. Mm -hmm. And if there is immune selection leading to uh, changes in the virus and the human, the, the effectiveness of the human immune response, meaning that people can get reinfected, that would be a problem. Right now, there's zero evidence of this, but it's a question that will have to be looked into. Right. Hopefully, it already knows what it wants to be when it grows up. But uh... well, you know, it 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 it. So it's it's a purely evolutionary thing. The only thing a virus wants to do is perpetuate itself. Mm -hmm. it doesn't like to be put to bed. Right. So SARS was too virulent. The SARS from 2003 was such a disease-inducing virus that it caused huge panic and led to thousands of cases, but it wasn't very transmissible, and it didn't have enough chance to mutate, adapt to people, mutating people to, in response to the, the immune antibody response to that virus, and so it went away. Right. And so what, um, what uh, the cause of COVID-19, the SARS-CoV-2 uh, uh, coronavirus 2, has done is it's, it's low enough virulence and it's slow enough to transmit itself in terms of causing disease. It's slow enough that it can transmit without causing severe disease. So it's maximized its ability to permeate the population. And we hope it doesn't get to the point that we get um, uh, mutations. Yeah. We're not there. I don't want to alarm anybody. Right, yeah. People no have enough to be worried about. People have enough to There's be worried about. about. Dr. Joseph Vinetz, thanks so much for talking to us, professor of infectious diseases at Yale University. Say hi to your wife. Tell her thanks for listening. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. All right. We're going to take a little break. And then just for, you know, just a way of just making your blood pressure go down, we're going to talk about politics, which, of course, always has that. It's like petting a chinchilla or something. You just feel a lot better. All right. So, you know, in so many different ways, we're all looking for the kind of happy medium here, right? Or happy 
slightly extremely tilted away from the medium, uh, looking for some combination of social distancing uh, and uh, and yet participating in fully as fully as we can in the life of our culture. Well, wouldn't there just happen to be a political campaign for president in the middle of all, all of this? We had a debate last night. Uh, we've got uh, primaries uh, in four states tomorrow, as, unless something has happened in the last... 45 minutes or so. I believe they're all planning to go forward with this, uh, which appears like they just don't get cable or something. They don't know that there's a problem going. Anyway, to help us understand all of this, he's been with us before. Edward Isaac uh, Dover writes for The Atlantic uh, and is the host of The Ticket podcast, uh, which is I was listening to the other day and he was talking about the fact that he'd been to the, the most recently last final Biden rally and was poised to go to another Biden rally, another Sanders rally, and the whole thing all shut down. He's currently writing a book, You Are Right to Be Concerned, great title now, Democrats in Crisis in the Trump Years. Welcome back, sir. Hi, Colin. How are you? Just fine. So maybe we should start with uh, last night's debate. Uh, there were, I think, attempts by both uh, Biden and Sanders at least to to demonstrate what? That they understand the gravity of this situation maybe better than the person that they're going to wind up running against. Did they make any points beyond that that were meaningful or helpful in sorting out this campaign? Well, the debate was always going to be at a weird moment in this race because when, given what had happened over the course of the last few weeks with the primary results that had come in, Biden taking this surprisingly strong lead in delegates and Sanders falling from what seemed like on the cusp of a march to the nomination to now, it's probably being mathematically impossible for him to get to the nomination. So that debate was there on the calendar for a long time. It was the two of them uh, then going to face off uh, from about a week ago. We knew that that's what it was going to be. And it was a question of whether Sanders would even stay in the race long enough to do the debate. And that conversation a week ago seems like several years ago at this point. Uh, obviously, now it's all about the coronavirus, and uh, and that was what they were trying to do in the debate last night, but at the same time, still kind of firing back and forth at each other on some issues of policy and some issues of politics that are very much internal to the Democratic race. Right. So, but we should say this is the first presidential level debate to be held in a closed TV studio since Kennedy Nixon, uh, famously. I think that there was a Gore Bradley one. Oh, there was a Gore Bradley one? Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. How, how could I have missed that great Gore Brad Bradley debate? But uh, <laughs> that must have been spellbinding. But um, so, yeah, I mean, there's a way in which you can make the case that what they should basically do is stop campaigning entirely. There was a moment last night, night of the debate, where one of the moderators said, Well, what are you doing right now? What are you doing to stay healthy? And they both talked about enhanced energy and washing their hands, and, and Bernie was talking about his fireside chat. But there's a, I think some of the audience is probably thinking, no, just like go home and don't even do this thing you're doing right now. This, If you want to illustrate how incredibly dangerous this situation is, one thing you could do is just like not be – you could socially isolate and you could tell a campaign. But I guess that's sort of just not so far in any campaigner's repertoire. Well, we've never faced anything like this, mm. and it's bizarre – 
what is going on in the lives of any American and every American at this point. But given that there is still a presidential campaign going on, it's a hard thing to figure out. Should we just stop holding primaries? Well, there are the public health concerns, obviously, but they're, they're weighed against the questions of democracy that are there. We have always had elections and wartime and everything else. And some of this is about the race that is going on between Biden and Sanders, and some of it is with an eye toward November. Of course, when we're looking at this, we don't know how long this is going to go on. We don't know whether it is going to dip during the summer and then come back in the fall and the winter. Of course, that would put things at the beginning of November when there would be the election for president, and we need to know a little bit about what that's going to start to look like. Uh, Are we going to have changes in the way the elections are done when it comes time for that election, which certainly does need to happen because it's part of uh, the Constitution that we have a, a, a president, whether it's a president being uh, inaugurated a second time or a new president being inaugurated come January 20th of 2021. Right. I mean, you know, the closest experience some of us have had, I I was here in Connecticut on the day of September 11th, 2001. We had municipal primaries and the Secretary of State uh, at that time announced that they would continue, that we would have voting. And we, we right. did. And, and that happened. But in a way, this one, because as you're saying, we've never really dealt with anything like this before, this thing, there is a palpable risk uh, to getting people into a large Places. You could you could argue on September September 11th that we didn't know whether the terrorists were all done, whether there would be other attacks. Right. But but you know there probably weren't going to be attacks at lots and lots of municipal polling sites. Whereas the virus can go anywhere. We have an enemy that's much more agile in some ways than Al Qaeda. Well, and September 11th was also primary day in New York City that year, uh, and the primary. It was canceled uh, in the middle of the day, uh, and it was moved back a few weeks. When it came time for the the actual uh, election for mayor, the general election uh, in November, that went on even though recovery was still happening in New York at that point. There was discussion from Rudy Giuliani when he was he was the outgoing mayor at that point, term limited. He was not on the ballot to run again of trying to get his term extended. We uh, knew at the time that he was trying to get himself an extra 90 days in power or maybe even longer than that. uh, And that was rejected by pretty much everybody. It's not impossible to think that we could be in a similar situation as that. But the Constitution is pretty clear, as I said, that there would need to be a new president or, or a president who is Donald Trump's term expires at noon on January 20th, 2021. If he has a new term, then he can be re-inaugurated into it. If a new president uh, is elected, then that president would be inaugurated. It, and, and the fact of having the election at the beginning of November is also mandated. So some of this, as I said, is about figuring out, well, what happens tomorrow in Florida and Arizona and Ohio and Illinois uh, in, in this decision process between Sanders and Biden. And also there are some lower level races that are going on uh, as well. And some of it is starting to think really forward eight months from now, because what we have seen, of course, over the last couple of weeks is a political system and certainly a government process that was not thinking ahead even more than a day or two, it seems like, and all of a sudden is trying to catch up. 
You know, um, well, this this asked maybe just address one thing that did smack of news that came out last night, which was uh, Joseph Biden making a firm public commitment to select a woman as his running mate in the event that he is the nominee. Um, this is uh, this is I think unprecedented. I don't think a major candidate ever made a pledge like that based on the actual characteristics of the person, whether the person was going to be male or female or of a different race or whatever. Um, nobody's ever done that. This early in the process. I don't know. Did did that seem like a thing that mattered at that moment? Uh, Is it something that could matter in the weeks ahead? Well, sure. That is a big move. It would, as you said, it's never happened quite like that before. Uh, Biden had been saying things like, well, I'd like it to think of a woman. Sanders had said that too. Of course, then when it came time to talk about it, in the debate last night, Biden was very firm in his commitment to it, and and Sanders said something like, uh, in all likelihood, I'd pick a woman. Mm -hmm. Uh, So not quite as firm. But what that means is uh, that, obviously, that uh, cuts the shortlist of potential running mates for Biden in half or less than that, because uh, if you think about the number of prominent Democratic officials who are women who would be good fits in one way or the other for Biden. It's not uh, such a long list of people, which speaks to, in part, how few women have uh, so far made it to the higher levels of American politics, which is not a great comment in itself, but um, is the reality of what we're looking at. We're talking right now to uh, Edward Isaac Dover, uh, writes for The Atlantic, host of The Ticket uh, podcast and currently writing a book, You Are Right to Be Concerned, Democrats in Crisis in the Trump Years. So there's two, I think, kind of possible competing theories about something like last night. Uh, and one theory is that uh, Bernie Sanders should participate uh, in a debate like this. And assuming that the, the narrative holds true and narratives so far in 2020 have had a way of falling apart again and again. But Let's say that this narrative with Biden increasingly having kind of a mathematical advantage that's insurmountable, that it's really good anyway for him to have a debate with somebody like Sanders who's going to take some swings at him, who's going to throw some haymakers at him because he's got to get ready for debates with Trump. He's got to have that sort of experience. He's got to be battle tested. The counter argument I would think would be that over the course of that debate, Bernie Sanders is reminding his followers of lots of reasons why they should never trust or vote for Joe Biden, why he just fails uh, all kinds of real basic ideological and behavioral tests that uh, are part of the Sanders movement. So I don't know, if assuming that you grant that dichotomy, how do you evaluate it? Well, there was some thinking going into the debate, certainly on Wednesday of last week when Sanders said that he would still be uh, staying in the race and staying for the debate. He seemed like he was looking to make the debate more of a conversation about issues that he wanted to push Biden on. And he had a press conference in Burlington uh, in Vermont last Wednesday, in which he ran through a bunch of questions that he said he wanted to press Biden on. By the time that they got into that studio for the debate last night, it was a very different tone. And Sanders really was continuing to raise questions of how would you expect the working class people of America to support you? It, it, it was the kind of debate that one might expect of an earlier point in the race, perhaps when it was not as hard to see how Sanders would emerge as the nominee, because part of what the issue, I should say, that Sanders is running into here is that he, about a month ago, again, this seems like 
10 years ago. Uh, but in the debate that happened in Las Vegas in the middle of February, there was a question asked at the end of whether uh, the people on stage, and there was a man, many more people on stage at this point, uh, would support having the, the Democratic nominee be the person who won a majority of delegates uh, in the convention, which is the rules, or would they look for something like a plurality of delegates? And every candidate on stage said a majority of the delegates, except for Sanders, who said a plurality of the delegates. Now, he said that at a point when he was expecting to have a plurality of the delegates. The Biden campaign now expects that by the end of the day tomorrow, if the results go the way that they're thinking, it's actually going to be Biden who has a plurality of the delegates, and Sanders will have to start explaining why he changed his standard for staying in the race. That, uh, and if it doesn't happen tomorrow, it's probably going to happen next week, presuming we have primaries uh, that go on. That That's really a tricky situation for Sanders to navigate, and the frustration from the Biden campaign that they did not get the kind of debate that they were expecting came out. And they, instead of, there was no spin room last night after the debate, obviously, because you can't do a spin room when we're all supposed to be standing six feet away from each other. So there was a phone call. A number of people who worked on the Biden campaign uh, were on the phone. And one of his senior advisors, a woman named Anita Dunn, said, uh, it's fair to say that Vice President Biden showed up to a debate tonight and for two hours graciously dealt with the kind of protester who often shows up at <laughs> campaign so events yeah. on live television. Uh, that is a comment that knowing the people involved and having spent a year and a half covering this race, I am, can tell you is because they thought that they were going to get a very different debate than they got. Yeah. Well, we'll have to stop there. Uh, this story will continue, though, and we are very grateful to have Edward Isaac Dover, writes for The Atlantic, host of The Ticket Podcast, which I recommend that you listen to, uh, currently writing a book, You Are Right to Be Concerned, Democrats in Crisis in the Trump Years. Uh, thanks for doing this. Thanks, Con. All right. Let us turn our eyes towards Shakespeare in the final segment. And, you know, I mean, this is not the first plague, right? Shakespeare knew what that was all about. Hi, this is Colin. We're still here. I want to thank two dedicated individuals, a senior producer, Betsy Kaplan, who put this show together and sitting in another enclosed space. Oh, I can see her through the window. And through the other window, I can see Cad Pastor, who's uh, on the board running this whole thing as technical producer. And I am very grateful uh, to have both of them with me. Uh, all right. So, yeah, you know, we believe on this show, if you know anything about us, that we want to focus on the issues of the day, but also there are ways in which everything kind of informs us uh, and we shouldn't turn our eyes too far away from, quote, everything, unquote. So joining us now to talk about Shakespeare, and there's a lot to say about Shakespeare on a day like this, is Daniel Pollock Pelsner. Uh, he is the Ronnie LeCroute Chair in Shakespeare Studies at Linfield College and a contributor to The Atlantic, The New Yorker, and The New York Times. He recently wrote a piece for The Atlantic that looks back at other times when theaters closed, starting with the plague in Shakespeare's time. Well, Welcome to our show. Oh, you know, you know what? I am so wise and, and that I forget to put him up on the board. There we go. I, I, I had one job and I screwed it up. Let's start over. Welcome to our show. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Colin, for having me on. 
All right. So um, actually, theaters closed in Shakespeare's time, uh, sometimes for the reasons of plague. And then in 1642, when the Civil War broke out, Parliament declared, I think, that all the theaters were going to close. And that that really was kind of the end of things, at least as far as the globe goes. But let's talk about those times of plague. Maybe sort of set the scene a little bit. Give us kind of a sense of uh, of what did happen uh, in in instances. I mean, there were two plague outbreaks, one in 1593 and one in 1606, I think. And so what happened then? Well, you're right. And I think sometimes it can be strangely comforting to look back at these earlier eras and see how theater and how human society weathered such uh, devastating epidemics. And the plague in Elizabethan London was absolutely devastating. We, we think it wiped out something like a quarter or even a third of the London population um, between 1593, that, that really horrible outbreak that you mentioned, and then it came back in 1603, and then 1606, it seems during the first years of the 17th century, the theater was closed probably more often than it was open. And the, the estimates we have about when the theater closed come from uh, lists of death tolls, these kind of gruesome archival traces called plague bills, where each uh, uh, church parish would publish the number of people who were dead that week. And usually the rule was that once there were more than 30 people dead, then the theaters would get shut down, although sometimes they could, this could get uh, negotiated a little bit. So it was closed from... I think late 1592 to 1594, and then again for something like uh, more than half the time from 1603 to 1613, and then the plague sort of finally seems to go away for a while in the 1620s. So, it, you know, it's always interesting to think about, therefore, what's going on in Shakespeare's life. I mean, it affects his ability to put plays on, to have plays be staged, but it's also going to affect him as a writer. Um, you point to things like, well, you know, why doesn't Friar Lawrence get to where he's supposed to get to in Romeo and Juliet? Well, because he's effectively, he's quarantined. Uh, and and But but I also wonder just in terms of the tone and, and maybe the darkness of Shakespeare's writing, to see so many people uh, around him die, people related to him people near and dear to him. What does that do to his writing? Do we have a sense of that? Well, it's a great question, and this is always tantalizing to think what would have motivated these shifts that we can see a little bit in Shakespeare's career from the kind of romantic comedies and histories he was writing in his first decade in the 1590s to much darker tragedies and more bitter comedies in the uh, early 1600s. And um, I, I think we can see that tone come through a bit in in a line that, that kind of might zip over your head when you're, when you're hearing or seeing a play for the first time, but when King Lear is getting upset at his daughters, uh, and this is a play that, that we think Shakespeare might have written while, during the closure of the theaters in 1606, Lear insults his daughter, and what he says, he calls her a plague sore mm. or embossed carbuncle in my corrupted blood. And that might sound to us just like a, a nasty thing to say, but when, if you can imagine Shakespeare perhaps seeing, certainly hearing about um, a quarter of London's population around him erupting in these uh, sores that looked like carbuncles, like ruby jewels, until they burst forth in just agonizing pain, um, we can sense that, that pain channeling through uh, Lear's sense of, of a, an ungrateful daughter.
So, you know, James Shapiro, uh, who I think you said in your article and he's been on the show, he has a new book out called Shakespeare and a Divided America. And he talks about the role yeah. that Shakespeare just plays all the time when we're dealing with things like this. Um, you know, he, he focuses quite a bit on the Civil War. Lincoln, uh, he considers Lincoln the nation's closest reader of Shakespeare of his day and that talks about how he fix, fixated on the tomorrow and tomorrow's speech from Macbeth, uh, although there was nothing to assuage in there. He thought the Claudius' speech from Hamlet was better than Hamlet's famous speech in Hamlet. He, you know, meanwhile, his the man who's going to kill him is Booth, uh, who's also fixated on Shakespeare, uh, uh, in, but in different ways, and who who shouts, uh, you know, a line uh, after the after shooting Lincoln. At the end, the nation had kind of an official mourning slogan for Lincoln, again from Macbeth. This is the besides this Duncan hath borne his faculties so meek uh, speech. I mean, it's kind. Kind of amazing that in times of public turmoil, and I'm just picking one, that we do turn back towards these texts. It, it is an amazing sequence, isn't it, during the American Civil War? Because in essence, before John Wilkes Booth assassinated Lincoln, he had been staging the assassination of a ruler over and over again. Mm-hmm. And he and his brothers, the other uh, Booth tragedians, had put on a production of Julius Caesar a few years before. So he had, in essence, rehearsed the assassination through Shakespeare and then enacted it in his own life. In his letters after shooting Lincoln, he, he compares himself to Brutus reading the nation of a tyrant like Julius Caesar. And I used to wonder, Colin, about Lincoln's preference for Claudius's speech. I, I thought that was a slightly a kind of perverse taste to prefer um, Claudius's uh, lines about killing his brother to Hamlet's lines about uncertainty after death. But if you think of the kind of guilt and anxiety Lincoln must have felt leading the country in a civil war when brothers were killing brothers. Then that speech of Claudius is when he says, my offense is rank, it smells to heaven, it has the primal eldest curse upon it, a brother's murder. Lincoln must have felt in some way that he was living out Claudius, Claudius's nightmare in his own country. Right. I I sort of compare it to the blues. You know, the blues can be two things. You can listen to the blues and some of the blues have a way of just there's something uplifting about the music and even some of the wittiness of the songs. But certain blues songs are it's almost like you're doubling down on your own grief or whatever it is that that you'd like to assuage. But the only way that you can really do it is to go deeper and deeper into it. And you look at that Claudius speech in which Claudius despairs of any possible, even divine remedy, even divine forgiveness for what he's done. And and you think about a man who's probably a rather on the melancholy side, Lincoln, you know, I mean, the tomorrow into the tomorrow and tomorrow speech, which he also obsessed about does not contain any solace at all either. But maybe just that that's kind of the way he rolled is, you know, think about it, think about it in the worst possible light until you feel better. Yes, that is. It's a very sort of Shakespearean remedy that you you double down on the cause of your melancholy and hope that doing so will purge it out. That's the uh, that's the fantasy that Orsino, the Duke, has at the beginning of Twelfth Night. If music be the food of love, play on. Give me excess of it, right? That um, uh, that it'll it'll purge him of his sadness. And then he thinks on the person he loves, um, the Countess Olivia, and he says when he first saw her. Me thought she did purge the air of pestilence. Mm. That is, the sight of her could get rid of the plague. And I always thought of that as a kind of lovesick, silly line. But thinking back to the kinds of experience that Shakespeare would have had with the plague, think what yearning there must have been in the thought that 
your love for somebody or their beauty could actually be a kind of uh, vaccine for this sort of pandemic. All right. So we all have to stop there. Daniel Pollack, uh, Pelsner, thank you so much for joining me. Ronnie LaCroute, chair in Shakespeare Studies at Linfield College, a computer, uh, contributor to The Atlantic, The New Yorker and The New York Times. He wrote a piece about this for The Atlantic, which we would encourage you to track down. The one thing that I would quickly say, there wasn't time really to have a dialogue about this, but there's a way in which we turn to Shakespeare fictionally to deal with apocalyptic thoughts. I mean, the, the most obvious one, uh, and I don't necessarily recommend you read this book right now, even though it's terrific, uh, is Station Eleven by uh, Emily St. John Mandel, uh, where it, it's about, first of all, a pandemic. I mean, it's about, it, it's, it will really frighten you. It's about a pandemic worse than what we are currently contemplating here. But it's, it is also about Shakespeare. It's about people who perform Shakespeare, both before and after the pandemic. And perhaps less admirably, uh, we also have The Postman with Kevin Costner, where he's going around performing in a post-apocalyptic landscape, rather lamentable versions uh, of Shakespeare. So there's He's there for us, and he might be there for you at some point soon. But since we're talking about the arts, we're going to end with the sounds of Italy. There's a balcony culture in Italy, in the Italian cities. And what people have been doing is serenading one another and sometimes serenading healthcare workers. And uh, a singer might join with a saxophone player five balconies away. This is happening all over Italy, I think especially in the north and places like Turin. Uh, and you're going to hear it now. There's the sounds of music from the balconies of Italy. (laughs) ¶¶ 